It's good to be here, good to share with you. Um, really thankful for Gary and his family and their ministry here in, in Raleigh. And um, Gary was actually really kind to me in seminary. I was, I was pretty lost going in. I didn't, I didn't know a lot. Like It took me five years to graduate, not because I was zooming through classes, so that tells you something. But he was really an encouragement, and yeah, he and I and another friend of ours, I remember, uh, they, they kind of helped me stay the course, and just even as I was getting used to that kind of theology and things like that, and they were really good to me. So uh, I am indebted to him, and so since I was in North Carolina for these conferences, I thought I'll see if he wants to grab lunch, and somehow I'm here now speaking with you. So I'm not sure what went on there, but it is a privilege. Uh, we are 18 years into our church plant, and so I'm guessing that we have experienced many of the joys and many of the sorrows that you are going through. And so he asked if I would share just a brief word of encouragement on your, your anniversary. And uh, as I was thinking about it, I don't know if I actually have that much wisdom to offer. In fact, at this point in our church plant, young church planters will want to meet and ask, you know, kind of what we did and things like that. And so uh, a couple months ago, I sat down with someone and shared, he's thinking about church planting, and I, I shared our testimonies, both the things we did that were probably good, those things that we did that were not so good. He had a lot of questions about me in particular, about my gifting and things like that. And again, I try to share my strengths, my weaknesses. And, and I don't want to brag, but at the end of the time, he said, man, that was so encouraging. And then he said this, he said, um, hearing you share makes me realize that God can use like anyone, right? And so like, I don't, I think my, my inadequacies can be an encouragement to others and that's good. So I don't know if I have a lot of wisdom to share, but let me do this. Let me just share a couple of biblical truths that I think I wish I had heard early on in ministry. Uh, likely they're things you already know, but I think it's always good to bring these things back onto our radar. And I want to share them in light specifically the challenges of church planting. Okay, so an encouragement with the challenges of church planting. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you know what to do when you're, you're blessed. Like none of you woke up this morning hoping someone taught you like, how do I live a blessed life? So I'm going to talk about the potential discouragements and worries and frustrations that go with ministry and, and really life. So if, if you're not really directly involved yet, uh, hopefully this can apply to, to what's going on with you. Uh, because if you are like us, then you know church planting isn't easy. Uh, it's tough when you don't have the resources to do everything that you want to do. Uh, when we started off, like we had all these big plans, and in, in the end, we just started off with a, a Sunday morning service. That was all we could really handle at the time. Uh, it's tough when you don't see the fruit that you would like, right? It took us some, I would say, close to five years to really experience significant growth. It's tough when there is conflict and differences of opinions on ministry. You know, that, that will probably always be around. It's tough when people you love leave the church and move on. We've, we've experienced that even this year, you know, with, with COVID and people maybe disagreeing how we handled certain things and friends you, you love moving on to other ministries. And beyond all this, again, even for you, maybe you think, well, ministry is going great. I hope it is. Um, all, what I share will, be, will apply to life in general. So I, I'm assuming that every one of you has your own story of suffering in some way. And so let me offer you two simple truths. They kind of come from my counseling background. Gary actually asked for three. I'm going to give two so that I don't go long, um, but hopefully you'll appreciate that. Uh, but here's the first one, is that remember that our sinful fears and worries are a result of our idols being threatened. Okay, our sinful fears and worries are a result of our idols being threatened. That's not that every worry and fear is sinful, but when we move past that point where we're not trusting God, then it becomes sinful. Um, so something we, we have to realize is that our fears and our worries are intimately tied to our idolatry, okay? Um, again, this might be something you already know, but if this is new, understand that 
that we are meant to worship Jesus, to, to cherish and value him above all things, uh, to trust him with the entirety of our lives. So when something takes that place, we call this idolatry. We can make an idol of money or success or morality or relationships or politics or whatever. And when something is an idol, we worship it, we trust it, we, we look to it for meaning or identity or hope or happiness. And what that means is that if an idol or, or something that is important to me is threatened, then we respond in fear or worry or anger. Let me, let me try to illustrate this way. Imagine I had this glass statue and it was your idol and you really believed that it would protect your family and make you financially prosperous and, and bring you good circumstances and grant you health. Imagine I had a hammer raised over it, and I was going to smash your idol, this thing that you need to survive and to live. How would you feel? Uh, again, picture you really believe you need this for life. Likely, you would, you would feel stress or anxiety or fear or anger. Your idol's being threatened, and so you respond. Jesus made this point in Matthew chapter 6, and, and we don't have a lot of time, so uh, just, I'll give you a brief summary, but he, he famously said this in Matthew 6.25. You probably heard this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Right? Very famous passage. Do not be anxious. But the very first word, therefore, reaches back into the previous section. He says, therefore, do not be anxious. So what did he say right previous to this? Well, in, in the, very, the verse right before this, he says this, no one can serve two masters. Okay, so no one can serve two masters, therefore do not be anxious. Jesus was tying our worship and our idolatry to our stress and our anxiety. And this is what I, I didn't get early on in our church plant. Right? It, it was easy to, to worry about resources or staffing or if we were reaching out enough or if my, my messages were good enough or if we were being generous enough. It was easy to be discouraged when we didn't see growth or families left the church or when people we were ministering to were just struggling. I remember at one point feeling so discouraged that I wasn't sure if I was called to be a preacher. Like I was thinking maybe I'm just supposed to be like a leader and pastoral ministry. I'll do something on the side, but I don't want to preach. I was, I was reaching that point where I was so discouraged. But in the end, I realized that when I get worried or fearful or stressed or whatever you want to call it, it's not because Christ is being threatened. Christ is never threatened. It's because my plans, my hopes, my dreams, my desires, really my idols are being threatened. Broadening this out. This is true for all of life, not just ministry. We will become anxious or fearful or angry when our idols are threatened. If I make a God out of my kids, I'm going to worry about my kids. If I make a God out of money, I'll worry about money. If I make a God out of my job, I'll worry about my job. If I make a God out of politics, I will be angry about politics. Now, now fortunately, we're not hopeless in this because this is where the gospel comes in. Right? As it redirects the affections of our hearts, we are freed from our idolatry. Right? It, it, as it draws our worship to Christ, then we're liberated from our false worship. Because when we worship Jesus and we refuse to bow down to our idols, then we don't have to fear or be anxious. Remember that the gospel isn't just about eternal life, it's about everyday life. It's doing this work in us that frees us from this idolatry. And this defeats fear for example, because if we have no idols to be threatened, we have nothing to fear. If we worship Jesus above all things, we never have to worry about him being threatened because, again, nothing can threaten him. 
our ministries can be threatened, our finances can be threatened, our attendance numbers can be threatened, our earthly futures can be threatened. Nothing threatens Christ. And so we place our faith in him, we trust him, we love him, we cherish him above all things. And when we do, we don't have to live in fear or worry. So that's my first encouragement. Remember, our worries and fears are about our idols being threatened. So don't let anything, even seemingly good things, become idols in your life or your ministry. Like, make it about Christ. And when you make it about Christ, you can move forward pursuing uh, the, the advancement of the gospel. All right, second idea is this. Remember that nothing has passed into our life that hasn't first passed through the filter of God's love. Okay? Nothing pass, passes into our life that hasn't first passed through the filter of God's love. Um, so you might be thinking, okay, really, you travel like 2,000 plus miles to tell me that God loves me. It's the first lesson we learn in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But first of all, when it comes to the love of God, we are really wading in the shallow end of the pool of that doctrine. Right? And every step we take towards the deep end, we just realize how uh, unending the truth is. And how for all eternity, Ephesians 3 says it's beyond our comprehension, how for all eternity we will wade deeper and deeper into that pool, pool and never reach the end of it. I want you to think about that. The love of God, you will never fully comprehend it. It is that vast. We will only gain a better understanding of how immeasurable it is. And importantly for our topic this morning, we don't consider enough that God's, what God's love means to everyday life. And so let me explain. If God's love is so powerful, so prevailing, that it must be the filter through which we see our sufferings and our challenges. They cannot be separated. Like, and it's not enough to think, well, I'm going through a difficult time. Maybe because of God's love, he's going to help me out a little. In Romans 8, Paul offers incredible truths about the gospel. And then he concludes it by, famously by saying this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, think about that. Nothing can separate you from, your love, from God's love. I mean, that's what Romans is saying in part. Previous to this, he said that God's love is proven in the gospel, and nothing can separate us from that love. And so with God's love being as sovereign and relentless and sacrificial as it is, we can only really come to one conclusion. Nothing passes into our life that hasn't first passed through the filter of his love. In other words, the, the challenges we face in ministry, and again, life in general, are directed by the sovereign and wise and loving hand of our God. For some of you, this may be hard to hear, to know that not, not only does God allow suffering, but even ordains it. But I think if we see our difficulties within the, within the context of God's love, suffering takes almost this dark beauty. It means that our suffering has to be for our good. I mean, theologically, there's no way around it. If God is loving and he ordains suffering and challenges and difficulties, they must be acts of love. And so here's something that I have told myself often in the last years of ministry. It's a simple phrase, 
but I remind myself of this often. It's, it's God, this is you loving me. God, that family who left, that's you loving me. It's you being kind to me. God, that fatigue I feel because it seems like I'm always serving, that is you loving me. God, that person who told me that my preaching is killing the church, true story, that is you loving me. That man in my life is you loving me. God, that attendance drop, that tight budget, even COVID and racial unrest and heated politics, that is you loving me. Rooted God has relentlessly loved you through the joys and sorrows of life. And again, broadening it out, I hope you see that it's true for all of life. Like Jonah, God sends gracious storms not to ruin our lives, but to save our souls. And with that, I don't want to simplify it because some of you are suffering severely. And I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm not acknowledging the pain that you're in. But at the same time, we must see suffering within the context of God's sovereign love, which means he's using trials to accomplish whatever is best for your life by whatever means necessary. I have, I have so many examples I could share of this, but let me just close by sharing one uh, more recent one. So end of last year, I had a heart attack. Okay, now some of you are thinking, wow, that is like a, a bunch of illustrations for a pastor. It's true. However, I do not like talking about it. So I've only talked about it one time at my church. When I came back from the pulpit the first time, everyone knew I had a heart attack. So I had a, I'd talked about it then, briefly, and then I've never mentioned it since, okay? And, and the, to be honest, it's... it's um, it's something that I'm still kind of working through. Um, so I'm not trying to, to milk this for a good illustration. Um, uh, to be honest, it's this ongoing painful part of my life. In fact, I was in the emergency room last week, right? So just still dealing with, with things uh, having to do with it. But I share, the simple, I share it simply because through it all, I really have seen God's love. And I understand it's not because I survived or because I, I somewhat got better, because Honestly, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but because in God's grace, he chose to bring difficulties in my life because he loves me and because he actually wants more for me than I really want for myself. As I preach often at our church, there is a grace in suffering. Not uh, God gives us grace when we're in the middle of suffering, but that suffering itself is a grace. And all that has happened has allowed me to experience it firsthand as he's graciously taught me so many things. And so I'm able to say confidently like that a heart attack was God loving me. And I believe that now, both now and as time progresses, it will be revealed just how kind he was. Again, I know some of you are suffering more severely than me, and so I don't want this to sound trite in any way. But I pray that you would hold on to the simple truth that God will, won't love you just despite your trials or in the middle of your trials, but actually through them. And so rooted, I'm, I'm guessing there are many joys and many sorrows to come, but be assured that God is loving you. And so as you put your faith in him over your idols, as you rest in his love, you will be able to move forward in the pursuit of the gospel here in the rally area. Let me just take a moment and pray these truths over you. Dearly Father, I thank you for your grace and your gospel, and I know that your love is something that this church so, so boldly preaches. Um, but I pray that they would not only see it as a message to a lost world, but as an anchor to their own souls. Lord, may they swim in this doctrine. 
And I, I pray specifically for those who might come this morning who are hurting in, in various ways. Maybe it is because of ministry. Maybe it's just because of what's going on in their own life. I pray that they would cling uh, to the, the, the gospel, that they would hold tightly to your love, knowing that though they may only get glimpses of what you're doing now, when all is made, when all is revealed on the other side of eternity, that you're going to show them just how loving you were through each and every dark moment of their life. And Lord, I pray for the ministry of this church. Lord, as we think of gospel ministry as this expansion of the gospel in the hearts of believers and in the salvation of unbelievers, I really pray that Rooted would be at the forefront of this movement in this area. Lord, we want to see revival. We want to see people who move beyond cultural Christianity and come to embrace the saving love of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, grant them much grace as they do it. Encourage their hearts, strengthen them for the task ahead, and use them uniquely to reach this area. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Kim. Before you leave, I have a couple questions for you. We want to pray for your health, now that I'm aware of this. Two, how can we be praying for your church and family? Um, yeah, so my and How health, many church plants do you have <laughs> before you get as your health We have one a couple. Too. So we, we planted in Texas uh, okay. about five years ago. So I got to visit them this summer. They're, they're doing well. And we're currently in the middle of one in Nagoya, Japan. So wow. Japan is the second, lar second largest unreached people group in the world. Right. And so they're, they're planting one there. Uh, so we're excited about that. So a couple of our interns, we've sent them out and we'll probably be supporting them for about a decade. So you can pray for that. Um, for, yeah, yeah, for my health, you can, yeah, just pray. Uh, just, um, I trust in what God is going to do. So just pray that my heart will continue to focus on God. You know, with each and every step, whatever happens next, that I'll continue to, to focus on him. Um, for the church itself, so I, I think we're, you know, like a lot of churches, we're kind of coming out of the season of being very inward looking, like, you know, just taking care of ourselves and worried about the people in our, 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 our church. And so I think we're really focusing on what it means to look again outward. You know, there's just people perishing all around us. And just uh, so you can just pray for that ministry as we look outward. All right, Ruta Church, uh, we're down to the last 20 minutes or so. I just want to thank you guys for participating in our second anniversary today. Um, I just want to do a quick ditty before I jump into the message. If you were here when the church first started, stand up. Way back in. Yeah, way back then, in, in the first year, 2019, who was here at the first, at the launch of the church, October 19? Same people? No, no new people. Who came in 2020 in the first half of the year, from January to the summertime? Okay. Who came to this church from July, summertime to the rest of 2020? And then who's come since then, 2020, 21 through the spring? A few more? Okay, this past summer. <laughs> We're just getting ideas. And this fall till today. <laughs> That's everybody else, right? <laughs> Some of you guys are today, <laughs> literally today. Um, so get, you guys sit down. This is an idea. Literally, probably over half this church has come in this past year. And it's just neat. Initially, I called this church uh, Rooted Church 1.0. Now, I believe at 2.0 stage. 
and we're just going through different staging. And I appreciate what Pastor Kim said. There are people that will come and go. And my church planning advisors always are counselors or coaches. I don't know what you call them, but they come alongside me. But they go, Gary, just understand uh, this is God's way of loving you. One. Two, this is God's way of loving you. And so it's different stages or scaffolding of church life. And so you just need to, I just need to understand that's just how it works. Um, just also wanted to let you know, next week, Dylan Frazier will be preaching. Many of you know him because he interned here for two years. And also, the Raven Band will be leading music. So music team gets to take a weekend off. So I'm glad for that. So you're all together as a combo team. You're all off next week. Um, our key word as we go into today's message is impact. Impact. And so if you're a kid and you're taking notes, start telling. We'll work on that and get you your Chick-fil-A cards after you get five weeks in a row. Um, today we started a new series entitled Rooted in the Gospel to Reflect God's, War, God's Glory. And if you're familiar with our church, that's our vision. Our vision for Rooted Church is to be rooted in the gospel to reflect his glory. Let's pray. Father, I want to look to you and submit myself to you, every thought, every word, to your lordship and kingship and the prompting of your spirit as I speak and we listen and learn and hear from you together. I do want to lift up Lighthouse Community Church and Pastor Kim and his team and leaders and the families that he serves. Father, we pray, Lord, for his ongoing physical and spiritual health and also we do want to pray for the two church plants. I'm very excited to see more church plants going into Japan. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless that and provide. And really, when I think of Japan, lostness in so many ways, Father, we pray, Lord, that you soften hearts, open doors for the gospel, for the people of Japan. And for us here, Lord, help us to, to see you and hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, most of you guys know I'm from California, um, from Sacramento, California. lived in the L.A. area, too. lived in the Bay Area and Central Valley. And I moved here four and a half years ago. And many times when I meet people from here, they go, Oh, Gary, you are from the state where there are many earthquakes. And it's true. There are pretty much earthquakes every day, but they're small ones at one and two and three level. When we talk about big earthquakes, there's only been about six or seven of them over 7.0 on the Richter scale. But you might have this thing in your mind, they're happening all the time because I think in the early part of this century, there was two movies focused on California. One was called The Ten, that one day that there will be an earthquake at the level 10 and literally cut off California and make it an island off the coast of western part of the United States. And so, in my lifetime, there's really only been two earthquakes that have been fairly big. The Northridge one, I believe, in 1994. And then in 1989, they had the Bay Area earthquake when the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants were playing with each other. They called it the Bay Bridge Series and also the Bay Bridge Earthquake. And that's the only one I've felt at a higher level. I lived in Sacramento. That's 90 miles away. And so, like, I remember when that happened, we heard a rumbling in our house, and I looked at the chandelier, and I was like, how is the chandelier moving like this? It's because 90 miles away, we felt the earthquake. And for my friends, they talked about how the water in their swimming pools sloshed up onto their driveway and stuff like that. And so that's the biggest earthquake I've ever experienced, and that was 6.9. Some of you guys might have seen pictures of that, where the Bay Bridge was broken, 
and there's <coughs> um, a ramp going down into the downtown part of San Francisco that was broken. So that was the biggest earthquake I have ever experienced. And one thing with earthquakes as it relates to church plants is that they have an epicenter, an origin, a beginning place where, where the <coughs> earthquake takes place and it causes seismic shift and destruction. On the other hand, when it comes with the gospel, there's power, far more power than an earthquake. It's the power to save, to transform, and to redeem lives. And this power isn't destructive, but constructive. And that may be a quick contrast between the East Coast and the West Coast when I moved here to the South. Um, I felt like I was coming to the part of the country where instead of earthquake, there's a lot of hurricanes. In California, we don't name our earthquakes, but for whatever reason, here in the South and in the Gulf, we, we name our hurricanes in alphabetical letters every year. It starts with A, B, C, and it goes all the way through. And so we give cute names to our earthquakes that cause damages, damage. And they're categorized differently. They're categorized in cats. Cat 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. I remember a couple years ago, literally we had a Cat 4 hanging off the coast. And we thought about running, but we said, uh, we'll just hunker, get, hunker down and trust the Lord. And then God literally just moved it from a cat, cat four all the way to a cat one really quickly, and he was gracious to us at that time. So um, what does this have to do with Ruta Church? When I think of the gospel, in many ways, there's huge power, um, gospel power, that's gracefully constructive and not destructive. So as we celebrate Rooted Church's second anniversary, really it's about saying thank you to Jesus for his amazing gospel in which his church is built on. It's not built on media or personality or my particular giftedness. Really, ultimately, it's built upon Jesus Christ, his word, and the power of his Holy Spirit. So this morning, I'm going to give you a quick sketch from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 to 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them or turn them on. This is what Mike and Manny read earlier. As we look at this passage, we're going to look at five ways in which we see the gospel and how the gospel impacted the church of Thessalonica. And as I do that, I'm going to study and interpret some of this together with you, and then I'm going to bounce and reflect on how God has done similar things in the life of Rooted Church as we bounce back and forth for the next 17, 18 minutes or so. So we're going to look at four ways. Right there, um, we see how the gospel <coughs> impacts, <coughs> and from a hindsight perspective, the remembrance of the gospel the impacting of the redempting, redemption of the gospel, the, impact, the impacting reflection of the gospel, and the impacting reception of the gospel. So let's begin with the first two verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We see Paul looking back, and we see how the gospel impacted from a perspective of remembrance to the gospel, we see Paul and his buddies, his ministry partners, in verse 2, he says this, We give thanks to who? To God. 
I found it fascinating as I was reflecting this week that God doesn't give thanks at all ever to the church. He always points his thanks to God um, first and foremost. So the thanks goes to God here. If we collectively give thanks always for all of you, referring to the church of Thessalonica, constantly making mention of you in our prayers. So they recognized their church wasn't about them. They recognized ultimately it was about God, God answering prayers to open the gospel to touch and impact the region and the people of Thessalonica. And likewise, your servant leaders here, my hope is that my heart, as I open my mouth and you interact with the leaders and interns and staff here, that we give thanks to you. We come together um, regularly and we pray for you and we thank God for each one of you. Um, and so we see as Paul gave thanks, there's some specific things that he fondly recalled and remembered in the lives of the church of Thessalonica in verse 3. <coughs> Paul states this. He says, remembering before our God, not your God or my God, but our God collectively. <coughs> what do they remember? They remembered God and Father and your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three fruits to the gospel that Paul lays out and reminds these believers, these believers at the church of Thessalonica, that God has, <coughs> the gospel has done in their life to produce these three particular fruits. And the first one is the work of faith. We know that we are saved by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ. And as you trust him, you basically go from saving faith to living out your faith. We believe that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We understand, according to James, that true faith works. It's not dead. And so they um, exhibited a faith that worked. Um, they were regenerated believers. Um, I appreciated Rebecca's testimony. I'll refer to it several times. But when I heard her testimony, I'm like, man, that's one of the best, clearest testimonies. Someone who has brought from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. It's very, very clear in her life. There's no doubt, at least for me, um, that she's a true believer. And so these people were born again. They were saved by faith. Now they're walking by faith. They're living transformed lives. Um, they are also marked with a labor of love. They, they were loved in and through the gospel. And I believe when you receive and experience God's love, you're loved the most. You're loved way deep inside in areas where there's hurts that need the love of God. And so as you're loved by Jesus Christ, guess what? You're compelled by his love to labor. You really, the only reason why we serve um, in Christ's church and serve the city is because of the love of the Lord. May this love compel you not to do better than another church or to do better than the other intern or whatever, or to try to out-preach Pastor Gary, which is easy to do. But seriously, your primary motivation should and must be love. And when things are discouraging, things don't go as planned, remember that Jesus Christ will definitely come back. He will return. And so we have a certain and sure and future return hope. And so this last part, um, this last fruit 
um, is sure, that we might have a steadfastness of hope. Because of our future hope, that causes us and motivates us to endure, to press on, to continue when things are difficult. So Rooted Church, yes, we have experienced up and downs, and each one of these challenges um, are a gift from the Lord. But I've seen, without a doubt, the evidence of faith, hope, and love in each one of you as an individual, as a family, and as a community. And we will need the gospel moving forward. And hopefully we grow deeper um, in the gospel and more rooted because for whatever reason, the Lord likes to amp up the heat and the challenges as um, we move forward. Every church I've been at, it's only gone harder. <laughs> the easiest church I was, I realized it was the first one, but at that time, it was hard for me because that was my first church. But looking back, I go, that was easy. <laughs> After that, it's only gotten harder, more difficult, and more difficult. But I think that's by design from the Lord because um, he believes I'm growing and he wants to stretch me more. And I believe he desires to do some more fatherly things to, with you guys too. Uh, way number two, I want you to see in verse four and five, the impacting work of redemption of the gospel. This is just amazing to see how God worked in and through normal, ordinary people like Paul and his companions as they were unashamed of the gospel, as they saw God's sovereign work work in and through them. Look with me at verse 4. Paul says, For we know, we know, referring to Paul and his buddies, and also the church at Thessalonica knows. And what do they know? Well, they know brothers, brothers and sisters, in the church of Thessalonica, they are loved by God. They are loved by God. At Rooted Church, I like to say often that you are loved. But I want to say today, according to this passage, the church of Thessalonica, the church of Rooted, and any and every church that have our objects of God's love are loved by God. We know in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says here, for we were, we were, while we were sinners, Christ demonstrates or shows his love toward us. When we were dead spiritually, when we were running our hellbound race and shaking our fist against God, God loved us. We also recognize God's love on the cross. Um, there we understand that Jesus Christ, what, in John 3, 16, he God the Father loved us. He sent his son to die for us on the cross for everyone's sins that would trust Jesus Christ and place their faith in him. So now if you are a child of God, I want you to know that God loves you. You are his beloved. There's nothing more you can do to get him to love you more. He loves you completely. He loves you and <laughs> accepts you completely. So you are loved by God. The second phrase I want you to see is that you are chosen by God. Yes, Rooted Church believes in the doctrine of election because the doctrine of election is in Scripture. And if you don't believe that, join a growth group because they're in what? Ephesians chapter 1, where several times it talks about chosen and elect. And other parts in Scripture, um, you see the doctrine of election in play. This is God's sovereign work to elect sinful men and women before the foundations of the earth to be found in him, in Christ. So yes, we believe in the doctrine of election because it's in the Bible. 
And there's other questions that come with it. And so I encourage you to ask your growth group leaders and press them on their theology and their commentaries that they've been reading. So go to a growth group. Um, Verse 5, I also want you to see um, more testimony of God's redeeming work. We see that we see God's love in play, his, his electing reality in play, and the fact uh, in the first couple of verse where this fruit came from. We see it because in verse 5, we see because of our gospel came to you not only in word. We'll stop right there. Um, I can say a gospel a whole bunch of times and not even say what the gospel is. I'm just going to give it to you short, sweet, and simple. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ to save and to rescue sinful man from the consequences of sin and hell and judgment by faith alone in Christ alone. And so that is the simple message that they receive, not only in word, but guess what? But in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The church of Thessalonica experienced a radical redemption. They turned big time. And we see it wasn't through amusement or having them walk through aisles, <coughs> down the aisle to sign a card and get wet as quickly as possible because they're most emotionally jazzed up. No, it's simply by the power of the Holy Spirit and through full conviction. They were convicted of their sin and in need of a Savior. And that's it. And they placed and threw their life upon Christ and called out for him, have mercy upon me, a wretched sinner. Lord, save me. But the key was the power of the Holy Spirit and full conviction, not partial, not some, not a little bit of conviction. We see what that looks like, you know. We know the parable of the sower sprouts up a little bit, and trials come, and then what? We see them fade away. But we see full conviction here. We see genuine life here. And so, Rooted Church, I just want to pause for another moment. This gospel went to what? From Jesus to Paul, a Jew. From Paul now to the Thessalonians, so it went to a Gentile group. This gospel was what? For all people and all nations. I look in this room and I'm blown away. We have people from all nations in this room. Let me just ask you some basic questions. If you have any kind of origins or backgrounds from the United States, raise your hand. Some of us, right? How about origins or backgrounds from Central America? There's some out there. How about from South America? Anybody? How about Europe? How about Asia? Come on. (laughs) We have them everywhere. God is at work. He's reaching every people group, even in this room and outside this room. The gospel is for all people. The gospel is for all people. And I want you to see that in every way. And so Paul knew this. And Paul... And his um, buddies, his ministry partners, they exercised an uncompromising discipleship amongst the Thessalonians in such a way that they proved, and they were kind men among the Thessalonians for their sake. They wanted to preserve um, the integrity of the gospel. Um, They didn't want to be questioned for impure motives 
or being out there for money or self-glory. They wanted to be about Jesus and Jesus alone. Way number three, um, the gospel impacts in a very practical way how we reflect the gospel. And we see this as the epicenter took place in the church of Thessalonica. We see that these believers produced a discipleship with an undeniable identity in verses 6 through 8. This is this what it looks like when a church, when a gospel-centered church impacts a community, a people, and a city. It says here in verse 6, 7, and 8, And you became imitators of us and the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction. Okay, they're reflecting God's word. They received the word in much affliction. And guess what? They also did so with joy of the Holy Spirit. It's a distinct reality that when someone comes to Christ, they experience a distinct joy. A distinct joy. That is unique to a believer. The joy of my salvation. There are movements out there, and I'll say there are satanic movements out there today um, that are threats to the church. And I'll name them, and you know which ones I name. They're BLM, and they're CRT. And as they move out, there is no joy when I see them do what they do. It's mostly anger, <laughs> and it's wanting to go after people and go after heads and cause them to roll. But unique with the gospel is joy, pure, Holy Spirit-filled joy. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Achaia, I mean Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith of God has gone forth where? Everywhere. So that we need not say anything. There's so much going on here, but I at least want to highlight the gospel didn't stay in Thessalonica. It went north to Macedonia. It went south to Achaia. And then went beyond that. And the message of Jesus Christ was so clear that everyone knew. The gospel sounded forth. Um, I, this word sounded forth or gone forth is the same word, two different translation. And the Greek understanding of this word is the idea of reverberate. I love it. The gospel reverberated. It just took off from people to people, to neighbors, to other regions, to other countries. If I were to plant a church one day or send a church out, I think this would be a very good name. We wouldn't have to even say reverberate church. Just call it reverberate and just have it super cool. One word. And, and people would say, what's that? And you can explain how and what the gospel does. I think this is great. Um, so this is the nature of the gospel. And so when I think of Rooted Church, even in our short time, we've seen the gospel go north to North Raleigh and Wake Forest. We've seen it go south to where? Cary, Fuquay, South Raleigh, Apex. And so we see the gospel moving and going forth. And so in one sense, I believe Rooted Church and the Church of Thessalonica and other churches, they practice and exercise an unapologetic witness as they lived forth, lived out the gospel. Last one, last one. 
um, four ways the gospel was received in a genuine and true way. You see in verse 9 and 10, the reception of the gospel and how it impacted individuals. These two verses in 9 and 10 are connected with the first couple verses uh, 2 and 3 together. But in verse 9 it says, They themselves, literally the Thessalonians themselves, reported concerning to us, to Paul and his buddies, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. My friends, this is a picture of God's amazing grace and true biblical faith and repentance. And it looks like this. We see that they turned to God from idols. Up to this point in their life, they served and worshipped idols. That's all they knew. And by God's sovereign grace, <coughs> the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, they turned to God and embraced him for salvation. They trusted him and they became followers of Christ. We also see in their conversion that they abandoned dead worship. They, be, they went from being idolaters to worshipers. They turned to serve the living and true God. Prior, they served dead and false gods, basically God's creation. But now, their love and affections are directed to God himself. And so, <clears throat> the outflow of true believers is that they serve God. They recognize they are citizens of God's kingdom, and they serve the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And they understand, as it breaks down into the local church, they prioritize the local church, and they serve in the local church. And also, as believers come together, they serve the city, and they're for the city. Some churches may have an anti-city mindset, like, we just don't want to go there. But we want to be a church that's for the welfare and for the city. And then lastly, the other fruit of the gospel, they might have hoped in their idols, their created gods. Um, a little bit, as Rebecca shared, that she experienced Catholicism and different types of faith. Now, their hope is now where? Not in the things of this world, not in satanic faith, but now their hope is in the Son, Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and guess what? He rose again, and he conquered death. And so they have a hope. And so we see in verse 10, to wait for the Son from heaven. And so they know that they have a window of, in, the, in the season of life to run this race, to make the most of the life that they've been given, to not waste their life, and to do everything they can with a sense of urgency for the sake of the gospel, to make him known to all people. And so with that hope is what the church of Thessalonica shares. And guess what? We share the same hope too, together, as we band together to spread the gospel here in the triangle and beyond. Lastly, we can be 100% confident of this because Jesus Christ rose again in verse 10 here, to deliver us from the wrath of God to come. Some people give different interpretations. This is a temporal thing. If we're talking about wrath in this world, I'd say maybe it could be a little bit, but I think the thrust of this passage refers more of 
eschatological perspective that Christ will come and he will judge and people who don't know him will experience wrath. Those who do know Jesus Christ will be protected from the wrath of God. And so we see because of Christ's saving work, we will be delivered from God's eternal wrath. So Ruta Church, let's remember. Let's remember also, <coughs> let's remember the gospel, his redeeming work. Let's reflect all the more of the gospel with consistency in this city. And let's remember that we don't just receive the gospel once, but we continue to live this faith out. We continue to live a life of repentance as we are on mission and on community. And Ruta Church, all I can say as an application, let's remember to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And as we go through this in the next weeks from now till Christmas, to the message after Christmas, the focus for us is to be rooted in the gospel, to reflect his glory, that the gospel may reverberate as we carry out our mission to enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ, to equip disciples in community, and to engage the cities of the RTP. Music team, please come up. Um, and let's sing to our King. Let's stand together.